Hello and welcome to The Rundown, a weekly podcast from Politics Home. I'm your host, Alan Tolhurst, and because it's nearly Christmas, we have a very special episode in store for you today. Now, it's not every year you have three different Prime Ministers inside Number 10 over the course of just 12 months. So to mark that, I have three very special guests who have been at the heart of the big stories this year that saw the slow decline of Boris Johnson, the swift rise and even swifter fall of Liz Truss, and the coronation of Rishi Sunak. First up, we have Sebastian Payne, Whitehall editor of the Financial Times, and soon to be director of the think tank Onward, who wrote the fall of Boris Johnson earlier this year. Alongside him, we have Harry Cole, political editor of The Sun and co-author of Out of the Blue, the inside story of the unexpected rise and rapid fall of Liz Truss, and Anna Isaac, city editor at The Guardian, who had a string of eye-catching Rishi Sunak scoops this year, including the clandestine launch of his leadership bid, his tax affairs, and his wife's non-dom status. So, yeah, as I said, guys, obviously it's a mad year to have three prime ministers. Let's just talk about where we began 2022. I guess people talk about the three Ps that brought down Boris Johnson, Patterson, Partygate, and then Pincher. Start with you, Seb. Where were we at January? We were sort of, I guess, partway through that second P. We were in the midst of the Sue Gray report mania that was taking over. That's right. And also, we were in the middle of Omicron as well, because this is the first Christmas season in three years that we haven't had um, COVID. I mean, it's still obviously here and there, and people have it, but it's not dominating politics in the way that it was this time last year. And I think this Christmas, Boris Johnson was fighting off the efforts for another lockdown. But yes, you're right, the party gate was trickling on. It was about this time that uh, Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, was put in charge of the first Partygate inquiry that unraveled about five days later when it was revealed there was a party held in his own private office and then of course it was very classic of that time and then before you knew it it was Sue Gray and she was put in charge of the internal Whitehall inquiry and when January began Sue Gray was preparing her report interviewing scores of people from Downing Street the cabinet office and starting to pull that together and what's quite interesting in retrospect is, had it not been for the drip, drip of Partygate allegations, because don't forget in January we had the revelations about the suitcase full of wine, we had the Prince Philip party on the eve of the Queen's funeral, those people getting boozed up in Downing Street, you had all that stuff happening in January. If it hadn't been for that, Boris Johnson would have had quite a good story to tell on COVID because he took a big risk Mm. by not locking down the country last Christmas. He sort of got away with it, as you might say, or made a very decisive good call on the vaccine booster programme. But he never got the opportunity to tell that story because it was Partygate all the way through January. Mm. Yeah, speaking of uh, of COVID, unfortunately, Anna, you've let us know that you've you've got got COVID nineteen at, at the moment. Can you just go back to that January period and just explain a little bit of the kind of the Sue Gray mania? I guess it's surprising that it's, it's this year, but there was this whole period where we were just waiting for weeks and weeks and weeks, obsessed with this woman who like this gnomic presence that never spoke in public, never said anything, and was just this one picture we had of her that was to illustrate all the stories. You know, what was kind of the mania around it? I guess it was partly. The, post-lockdown Partygate stuff. What was kind of going on there? It was such a strange drama because it was really about whether or not someone had told the truth at various points as much as it was about the actual activities themselves. Yeah. Very unusual in that regard. Um, And you had this somewhat enigmatic figure, as a lot of senior officials are, who really had the fate of the prime minister in her hands, which is obviously an incredibly uncomfortable position for an official to be in. 
Um, in the end, she sort of found various ways to, to sidestep it and, and try and sort of do the best job within the bounds of her responsibilities, I guess. But everyone was trying to find out more about this um, Northern Irish figure. Um, I found out that she really likes cuddling puppies, which <laughs> right. I was sort of <laughs> pleasantly surprised by. But it was a very straight, yeah, it was a really strange situation where you had this official at, at the heart of a political scandal um, that was just drip feeding on and drip feeding on and becoming quite compelling as a scandal in its own right because a good scandal always sort of is incremental and then you get little juicy details, little juicy details. Um, and I, it, it was quite divisive as well. So there were a lot of people that were like, we need to move on from this. This is really fatiguing. Yeah. I want to get on with the running of the country. But it was quite evenly divided, I found, amongst readers um, between people that really wanted to get to what had happened and who said what when. And then other people that were like, can we can we deal with all of the other problems the country faces? So um, yeah. um, it was it was a very strange time indeed. Yeah, I mean, I, I was until I, I actually saw Sue Gray in in the Commons uh, a couple of weeks ago. Until then, I wasn't even sure she really existed. To be honest, she was just sort of figment of of the civil service imagination. At the end of January, uh, her report was paused as the police got involved. Harry, how important do you think that aspect was in the kind of we talk the slow decline of Boris Johnson? Was that really the kind of the beginning of the end, or, or do you think that he was able he would have been able to ride that through had he not ended up getting himself into more drama down the line? Well, in a weird way, actually, um, and I don't, I'm not a conspiracy theorist that thinks they did this on purpose. The police investigation actually bought Johnson some time because right. um, towards the end of January, there was the sort of pork pie plot, I think we called it. Oh, yes, um, yes, of course. Where sort of 2019 intake uh, MPs were in sort of open mutiny. It was quite openly speculated that there was going to be a challenge. There was going to be a vote of confidence in the prime minister. And then the police opened their investigation. Gray had to ice her report. To her fury, as I understand it, because um, the police had said they sort of dithered, so they weren't going to investigate. And then suddenly they did right when she was about to publish it. And I think it would have reached a critical mass in January because um, the anger was there. If Sue had dumped that report in January, it would actually have um, it actually would have been, I think, probably worse for Johnson in a way, because I think the whole thing would have come to a head much, much earlier. Now, he might have been able to survive that. It's one of those alternative history moments we never know. But I suspect you know, that vote of confidence would have happened then. And as we know, once a vote of confidence has happened, the clock is ticking on anyone's administration. And in mm. a way, the, the that delay bought Johnson the time that he needed because from sort of November to November through to sort of January and February was that time when the UK and the US were watching the troop build up in, in on the Russian border and were trying to sort of alert the entire world to, to what was happening, alert the Ukrainians to what was happening and build that G7 coalition around uh, response to that. And he wouldn't have been able to do that, I think, if he'd been on his uh, out on his on his behind in January. Yeah, sure. And kind of fast forwarding a bit into the year, as the, the Sugre eventually report eventually comes out in May. We get the announced the news of the fines that the Prime Minister and the Chancellor got, the kind of uh, one of my favourite lines of the year from Connor Burns about being ambushed by a cake um, and that sort of stuff. And, and I just wanted to say at that point, once those fines had come out, you know, what at what point do you think that did the Johnson administration think that they could ride that through? Obviously, they were, they were sort of riding high, as Harry says, in terms of the UK's response to the Ukraine um, invasion. You know, what kind of was the mood you think in, in Downing Street 
after Sudagray finally came out? Do they think that they could perhaps ride that ride that out? Well, I'm sure all three of us will remember those briefings from Downing Street where we were told it's all going to be fine. Boris is not going to be fine. He's got these very convoluted legal excuses about why it's all going to be completely um, rideable. And of course, that proved not to be the case. I think the, the mistake we probably made, and I feel I certainly made, looking in retrospect about how we reported and analysed it at the time, was to say that, you know, he could get fined and he would just survive it because it's Boris Johnson, he's the Teflon politician, he can always get out of scrapes that any other politician can't. But the fine was a very decisive moment because, first of all, it meant he became the first Prime Minister um, in British history to have broken the law within office. People may have disagreed or not with the fine, but it was indisputable. He had certainly broken the law in that instance. That also went for Rishi Sunak, the then Chancellor, who was also fined at that moment. But then what the fine led to, of course, was the full Sue Gray report. And as Harry was saying, I completely agree with what he said, that had the report come out at the end of January, we would have almost certainly got a confidence vote at some point in February. And then what happened with Ukraine the rest of this year would have looked very different. But I think as soon as you had the full Sue Gray report, there was no confidence letter started to drip in. And many Tory MPs who said, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt, are going to see what happens with this. They saw the full Sue Gray report. And in some ways, you could say it was underwhelming because we knew so much of it already because it'd been some amazing reporting by um, mm. by by the lobby to get this information out there. But then ultimately, you did see the full Sue Gray report. And at that point, Tory MP decided they were fed up and had enough. And that led, of course, to the no confidence vote, where 41% of Tory MPs voted against Boris Johnson. And from that point, I think it was reached a question of when, not if, he was his time was up. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of, of Theresa May. She obviously had a similar vote of no confidence in December 2018. She won it, but it was kind of a Pyrrhic victory. It kind of, it, even though she, you know, you're technically safe for 12 months, we know from repeatedly that that doesn't actually end up happening. And 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 so, Anna, just going forward on from that, after that vote of no confidence, do you think if it hadn't have been for the handling of the Chris Pincher scandal, he would have been able to sort of limp on? Or was it essentially just a tinderbox waiting for a spark? And, and any spark like that would have would have precipitated his downfall, do you think? Well, I think it's important to remember that the cabinet were kind of, you know, prospective leaders um, were on the offensive from just before Christmas last year onwards. Yeah. They, the tensions were rising over the, the, the question of would we have to lock down for Omicron? Um, and it was at that point that people felt that another another lockdown would be fatal um, for the for the Johnson government. Um, and so people had got their ducks in a row from very early on um, at the turn of the year. And it was in that atmosphere that the Pincher scandal emerged. And it was a, it was a, oh, we had to put everything on ice before, because as people say, the heat was taken out of the grey report. So people had got everything ready for a leadership campaign in many instances. And then they were like, oh, so fizz with fizz with Liz and uh, that, that the infamous, uh, and you obviously you wrote about uh, ready for Rishi.com and, and that, that kind of stuff that was happening at the time. Yes, absolutely. So, you know, the slogans, the slogans were well oiled as were the mechanics, the databases, the CRM. Um, um, but that all had to go on ice because as, as Seb says, you know, the, it really, you know, Johnson is this amazing political survivor that is constantly underestimated. But then there was this momentum that was building around the Pincher scandal, which was a very, it was again a who knew what when yeah. scandal. And that again spoke to honesty. And that that is when you sort of saw the foundations of Partygate and Pincher sitting on top of them, yeah. which sat on top yeah. of itself, sat on Patterson. And it was again this matter of, look, you've you've got an extraordinary charm and charisma, but you've got a problem with the truth potentially. And um the the tolerance for that had had 
had been lost, I think. And, and yeah. that's when the political opponents suddenly realised, or political allies as they were, suddenly realised <laughs> yeah. well, become an opponent. For, for me, Harry, I think the moment was after the pincher, which was reported by my former colleague, Noah Hoffman, and, and your now colleague, uh, Noah, was that, you know, they were sending out ministers, essentially, to try and defend Johnson. And, and, and then they were having to suddenly reverse that position. I remember poor old Will Quince got sent out on the Sundays to essentially defend an indefensible position. And I think it was at that point the really that you know you saw cabinet ministers being like I just can no longer sort of defend this I think that was the point where I thought well he's just not going to make it through the next month let alone the next sort of year and in the end it was that week uh that he went down it was the the resignations first of, of Rishi Sunak and, and Sajid Javid and then there was that mad morning when there was about 56 resignations in in one day it was, what was what were your thoughts that week were you basically like essentially dead that week was it what was it like <laughs> It hasn't really stopped since. No, it really hasn't. Really. Um, this, the last two weeks, it sort of feels like the story sort of carried on um, since then. Look, I, my understanding was Will, poor Will Quince was actually in with Boris Johnson, um, going being very, very cross about being sent out without the right information um, at the very moment that, that Sajid Javid uh, tweeted his letter. So I think what happened was um, two things. One... Lots of cabinet ministers and ministers after Sue Gray convinced themselves, rightly or wrongly, but probably out of convenience, that they could give Johnson one more chance, one more chance to turn this around, one more chance to do this right. And with that pincher stuff and the way the story just literally fell away away from him like a house of cards underneath him. And he was skewered by Simon McDonald. He was he was skewered by various people who just came forward and said, what you are telling people is not true. Yeah. Um, I think it just it was just a very, a very key moment. I think the team that he brought in after Partygate to sort of uh, shore himself up, of which Pincher was a, a loyal member of that, almost rewarded with a job because he'd helped get him through that January, February period. Um I personally think, and reading Seb's book, I, I agree with, with my own views and his views even more now, is that that team actually accelerated that downfall. Yeah. Um, and they were well, there were some pretty extraordinary briefings, wasn't there, from people like Guto Harry yeah, and that they brought I mean, in, were, you know. Friday afternoon briefing that they couldn't, you know, they couldn't um, suspend Pincher because they didn't want another... David Chris, Kelly. Uh, another David Kelly case. And you just think, why the hell are you talking to the press like that? Like, this is just... If you're trying to create a narrative of, of sort of competent, grown-up government, you don't charge around saying incendiary things like that um, in, in meetings, knowing full well it's going to leak. And so it's he was sort of hamstrung by, A, his own sort of handling of it and the fact that he didn't, he didn't tell the truth immediately, but also his team around him, I think, were just too gung-ho. And yeah. I think, you know, you could just see patience just snapped and you had sort of normal model of the road moderate Tory ministers just going I'm done no way not doing this anymore not having this um and as as Anna points out you know as he fell away um others were waiting in the wings yeah Seb so uh, as we get to that that week where where Johnson finally decides to go there's that extraordinary delegation of ministers walking up Downing Street to then sort of tell him he needs he needs to go what was the mood you think in like in, in in number 10 then and obviously that extraordinary speech that he gave the morning after uh, when he did stand down about you know when the herd moves and Cincinnati and his plow you know what was the what was the kind of the, the feelings there he still feel it still feels now that he feels like there's kind of unfinished business and he feels very hurt about the way that things ended in that sort of swift manner that's right and Boris Johnson has been hitting the very well enumerated um, speaking circuit at the moment and he currently gave a speech at a crypto conference in Singapore recently 
he blamed the hot weather and said that essentially the UK was in the middle of this heat wave and people had kind of lost their minds a bit. If they just held on and got through the summer, things could have improved and could have uptipped and things could have gone on longer. And I think that actually speaks to a sort of misunderstanding of what happened. As as, as Harry just said, you know, yeah. the, the nine month period that my book covers, it looks at when the relationship between Downing Street and Tory MPs essentially wholly and totally collapsed. It started with the Owen Patterson affair about about trying to save the former environment minister last autumn and then went through Partygate and then into the fine, the no confidence vote, the Pinter affair. And in those final 24 hours, really, as soon as Rishi Sunak resigned, the wheels came off Boris Johnson's operation within Downing Street. I mean, you basically had two camps at this point. One camp saying you've got to keep fighting, you've got to keep going. You had Nadine Dorries, the culture secretary, she was leading that camp. You'll be very surprised to hear. And then on the other side, you've got other people saying to him, you know, look, this is probably over. You need to go in a dignified way. Otherwise, it's going to get very messy. And the fascinating thing is Boris Johnson did ultimately decide to go. He didn't push it to the absolute degree he could have. He didn't try to push any constitutional norms in terms of the 1922 committee or calling a general election or trying to keep a government going. And eventually, at about 11 o'clock the night before he did announce his resignation, he essentially looked at the people who were willing to serve in his government and realised that it was over because he just couldn't get good enough people, basically, to run a successful government. And, you know, he's turned to one of his aides and said, you know, we can't do this. We can't have a D-list government, which sort of implies his government before that was actually a C-list government. But um, I think, you know, at, at the... <laughs> well, let's, let's jump straight down from A-list. He's gone all the way down the rung sort of straight away. Well, we'll let listeners decide on which level of, of people he got to at the final days of that of that government. But look, I do, um, I do think that he does feel you're right, Alan. There is a lot of kind of, you know, unfinished business there that Boris Johnson would still love to come back. He tried to come back in October when Liz Truss's government fell. And I think he still harbours that. But I do wonder, you know, he talked about the herd moving on in the summer. And I do wonder if it's moved on even more now. You know, we're literally on to our second prime minister since he left Downing Street. And it's quite hard to envisage the circumstances where it would suit him. You know, if Rishi Sunak wins the next election, he's obviously not going to come back. If Rishi Sunak loses the next election, is he going to do five hard years in opposition? Maybe he will. But I feel like the chance on that are probably the odds are lengthening. Right. Well, look, we're going to have to speed up because we're only through first prime minister. And we've, got, we've got two <laughs> more to get through. And, you know, there's, there's so much to talk about. But, you know, so so we've now we've, we've, Johnson's gone and, and we suddenly have this huge bun fight, I think was was it 12 or 14 or so, and people throwing their hat in the ring to begin with to become totally very quickly whittled down to those those final two, which was Rishi Sunak and, and, and Liz Truss. Anna, what, you know, where do you think was the moment that Liz Truss won that? And where, where do you think Rishi Sunak lost that contest over the summer? Because it felt like it was quite kind of done and dusted quite early on. So what do you think kind of, you know, won it for, for trust early doors? So I think when it was interesting talking to people familiar with both campaigns, the, the certainly the it wasn't really a big public moment, but the moment I thought um, um, Trust would probably have it and have it relatively easily was actually the way they approached their communications to the grassroots. Right. So um, when um, Trust's team were reaching out to people in local associations you would just see a really straightforward email, probably not GDPR compliant. Um, <laughs> that was just, hey guys, how are you? Like here's, you know, just a very immediate off the cuff. Um, 
everything to do with Rishi's campaign was extremely controlled from the GDPR compliance onwards. Um, So sorry to be a very boring technician about it, but I think it was that sense of immediacy and that comes across, um, you know, local associations can see through polish in a in a heartbeat in my experience they're just they're super direct they're dealing with local issues all the time they f- feel that they have to capitalize on these moments when they can really get you know get involved in the face of people that are going to be sort of representing their views that they fight for day in day out um and there was a sense very early on that that connection wasn't being made yeah over the summer like liz got it was a phrase I heard a lot from a lot of local associations and yeah and um, that, that that was a lot of that was about about taxation as well they really she really yeah. tapped into this idea of having immediate tax cuts after yeah. the sort of higher tax burden whereas Sunak was the more kind of pragmatic like we'll have tax cuts but once we fix some of the stuff in the economy and and that felt like that that message of, of trust you know immediate tax cuts really resonated with those members yeah and it, and it was coming up after after we'd had the huge financial support from the government for um covid-19 and uh, you know a lot of um grassroots conservatives are very concerned about the public debt and they have been for a long time it's one of the most long standing issues so as well as the tax cuts because they believe that's the best way to stimulate the economy they're also very concerned that there was this need to switch the relationship between citizens and government and for people to realize that you know the cupboard might be bare and that we could necessarily have the same relationship with public services going forward um, and they felt that that um, you know Liz was fundamentally understanding that whereas Rishi was taking a more centrist route that they felt less comfortable with um, yeah. and had in their view maybe offered almost too much support to people um, in the aftermath of, of, of COVID-19 and they you know they really felt things like the 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 fraud that has been uncovered associated with some of the financial support very strongly because they you know they really care about how public money is spent. Yeah. Yeah, Harry. I, I guess obviously you were watching this. I guess at some point you and James Heal from a Spectator, probably over a glass of Sauvignon Blanc. Who who, who knows? Decided that it was you know th- this story, Liz Truss's rise from relative kind of obscurity. She obviously was well known within Westminster. She'd have lots of uh, ministerial roles, but wasn't hugely known. Suddenly, this kind of meteoric rise to to blow away the Sunak campaign and and win. He decided right, this is ripe for a, for kind of a book for for the story to be told. You know what was kind of the starting point. For that, really, and and again, where do you think that she she won that contest against Sunak? I think she actually beat Sunak in September twenty one, um, right. when two things happened there. One, she was she didn't resign, she didn't walk out, but she absolutely eviscerated him at the cabinet over yeah. um, raising national insurance, um, and that was just on the eve of her becoming the foreign secretary. Um, she met her marker down. She obviously, in her customary style, it managed to her views managed to find its way to the front page of the Sunday Telegraph. How on uh, earth did that happen? How on earth does that happen? She made her point. She put her marker down. She said we shouldn't be doing this, and in a weird way, set the dividing lines already for the campaign right there. Um, and then I think Johnson would have liked to have fired Sunak in that September reshuffle, but just didn't, couldn't, just couldn't, but would have liked to. Instead of firing him, he, he clipped his wings and he, you know, Sunak was already being discussed as a sort of golden boy, Mr. Furlow, the next leader in waiting. And in promoting trust, Johnson made sent a very clear message to Sunak. He says, if you come for the king, you ain't going to get a clean shot at it. It's going to be a, there's going to be a contest. Um, and he proved ultimately to be spot on. That's exactly exactly what happened. So the sort of, you know, the sort of seeds of her rise were, were there already. Um, and, um, you know, in the campaign, 
you know, she was the only candidate that was, appeared to be talking to the electorate that was going to choose the leader. Rishi Sunak yeah. had a very good campaign, general election campaign. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or a very good, um, you know, accrual of people who said a very good campaign to be, you know, the next Tony Blair. But, you know, Liz was talking to the members, telling them what they wanted to hear, yeah. um, and dressing up like Margaret Thatcher. And yeah, he, it, seemed, it seemed like Sunak felt queasy about the idea of like saying one thing to the members and then going on to say a different thing to the public. Whereas Liz Truss said, seemed... said all things to all people. In her effort to unite the right, she was the Brexiteer darling. She was the anti-immigration free marketeer. She was sound. She was big spending. She was all over the place, and it worked to get her into <laughs> office. But the problem with being a friend, or a friend to everyone is actually when the going gets tough, your your new friends dissipate very quickly. And yeah. it, it turns out that the actual trusteesters, where we call, I never, never actually found a, a word for them, trussites, um, <laughs> were actually quite limited in number. So when, when, when things went south, they went south very quickly because uh, her, her fair weather friends were nowhere to be seen. Yeah, and Seb, things did go very badly, very, very quickly. Obviously, unfortunately for you know for her, the, the death of the Queen really marred those, those first couple of weeks she had in office, and and that immediate process she wanted to put in place to bring the energy support package through and, and an emergency budget was all kind of stymied. So when we came out of that mourning period, you know, her and Kwasi Kwarteng went at it a million miles an hour and led to the now infamous mini budget. Um, just explain to us, I guess, you know, why that landed so poorly, and that was really the seeds of her downfall in the first few weeks well Liz Truss as Harry charts so well in his excellent book had this kind of attitude of I love this cross promotion of the book (laughs) exactly every time I've been doing a book event I always make have a reference in this way you've got to fill the stocking somehow this Christmas but I think (laughs) um I think you know as 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 we now know essentially Liz Truss had this whole attitude of we've got no time left you know it's only two years to an election we've got to move fast we need to go big we need to go home or go big or go home and and in this case she obviously went very big and I think that period of mourning the two weeks or so after her majesty died meant that essentially the the plans for that for that mini budget just grew and grew and became like a christmas tree in some respect and extra things were hung on it because the economic plan was pretty well developed over the summer and it was well it was well known for the markets but also for the people doing fiscal forecasts what was coming but then this statement emerged and it had all this extra stuff on including of course scrapping the 45p top rate of tax which was a big extra element to it as well and being for the income tax cuts so there was a lot of extra bits put onto it and it was pretty much wholly rejected by the market straight away that sterling started to tank government borrowing starts to go in the same direction and things start to destabilize pretty rapidly over the over that period and you know essentially liz trusses was told by very senior people in whitehall if you don't bin this whole thing down, you're going to see a complete fiscal collapse of the UK economy. You're going to have huge, huge problems. You could be in a situation where the UK can no longer sell its government debt. And ultimately, and that you know will probably put you and your party out of power for about 20 years, if not longer at that point. So you're going to need to jettison it all and you're going to need to do it pretty swiftly. And ultimately, Liz Truss sort of lost bits of it um, 
in the run-up to that, you know, the 45p rate, that was scrapped at Tory conference, yeah. a very chaotic Tory conference. And then ultimately, Kwasi Kwarteng, who was then Chancellor, was off at the IMF in, in Washington, D.C., and he was flown back. And he, when he was in the car riding from, in, from, from the airport, he saw on Twitter he'd been sacked. And he goes into the cabinet room and Liz Truss says, you know, I'm very sorry, Chancellor, I need you. I'm going to have to move you on. And he goes, yes, I know. I've just seen on Twitter. Um, and at that and at that point, um, it all sort of falls apart. And then obviously she comes to a big crash end and trussonomics, as it was then known. I mean, we are probably going to enter the stage pretty soon where the argument will be it wasn't trussonomics. It was just the real trussonomics hasn't actually been tried yet. Yep. But I think that agenda that Harry was saying that she really sort of put down the marker for going back to September, you know, that's been quite discredited in terms of how it landed both within the market and within the Conservative Party. But I do think that there are many Tory MPs who do actually think, you know what, maybe she had a point about growth, maybe she does have a point about taxes. And so even though her arguments have not got very far, there's many Tory MPs who still want to keep fighting for them. Yeah, I, going back to those that, that those mad a conference i remember on the way back from labor conference being on a train back from liverpool and thinking like the pensions market might have fully collapsed by the time i get to houston it was like it was it was getting really kind of serious on the on that day and obviously that in the lead up huge in the lead up to the to that to the to the tory conference and obviously the, the fact was there was no obr forecast i mean how crucial in the end is that going to be in, in the kind of the story of liz truss as, as prime minister and, and so we, we spent months talking about what the markets were going to think about everything the market suddenly became this this sort of god that we all had to bow down in front of you know what kind of impact do you think that's going to have on long term on, on, on the way we view kind of economic policy I suppose so I think it's going to be huge right because there are people now that will be for the next five years because they thought the only way was up stuck on a six percent mortgage um that yeah. is um and that's you know that's that's painful um and um it's it's the sort of thing you never forget you know um i'm sure if you speak to people of an older generation they will tell you about how expensive their mortgages were in the 80s and 90s um early 90s so it's um it's a very sticky wound i think that um will be worn in terms of uh, economic orthodoxy um uh, so to speak for for the months and years ahead um that said um if uh, Truss and Kwarteng had been less ambitious and they had just focused on things like, yeah. um, you know, for instance, we forget just the scale of the numbers involved. If they had done something for energy and they had had a national insurance reversal, that might have been manageable. And that's still absolutely mind-bogglingly massive. So we are in the world of bigger numbers now. And I think that will be the big legacy of Trustonomics is that the numbers involved now, especially post-Ukraine and following that huge you know, tantrum in, in the government bond markets is that the numbers are big now and the numbers are going to be big now for years and years. And it's forced a whole confrontation with the how do we afford an aging population and what the public services look like in that scenario. Um, and so I think it's I think it was weirdly a conversation that um, Liz Truss herself was very up for, although in a very radical uh, in a very radical sense, but I think her radicalism is going to frame the conversations we have now because by <laughs> by making government death less affordable and making everyone really aware of that, right? People didn't have this awareness of how vulnerable the UK was in terms of its borrowing costs. Now everyone is much more aware of how vulnerable that is because the wheels nearly came off. Um, in a way that it's it's really going to dominate, I think, the conversations we're going to have for the next six months, year, two years, right through to the next general election. So I actually think yeah. those few days are going to be the 
the decisive days for 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 this electoral cycle. It's quite some legacy for a PM that was only in office for uh, forty nine days, or whatever. Harry, go, the, the the Tory conference will will there ever be a Tory party conference quite like the one that that, that we had this year? I, I remember bumping into you on that Sunday night when you were trying to get the uh, the forty five p abolition story into the paper. It was uh, fraught to say the least. Um, was there any chance that she could have ridden things out? Obviously, she didn't give a very good speech, and and I suppose at that point it was already starting to sort of fall apart. You know. What did you kind of make of that conference overall? What was your, what did you got on the, oh no, not the train, there was no trains on the way back, but when you finally made your way back from Birmingham, what was your kind of overall takeaway? I have to admit, when I finally got back from Birmingham, I was up for another sort of 96 hours straight trying to finish the book, which was meant to end, <laughs> meant to end with that conference speech. And that's when we took the executive decision, actually, to go, hang on, this, this ain't over. Let's all do it. Yeah. I think... Once you U-turn once, the, the the blood is in the water, the shark circle. Yeah. You saw live on television one of the most amazing uh, television moments for political nerds like us. Um, I can ever remember that Michael Gove morning where he just machine gunned her live on TV. Yeah. She'd made a big overture to him the week before. She'd offered him the ambassadorship to who knows where, trying to get him out of the country, out of the way. I think she realised at that conference that she probably should have dipped a few more hands in the blood, brought some of the Sunakites in, got them out there defending, you know, give them big jobs and get them out there defending her policy decisions. And instead, that was the moment I think you could see on her face. She realised, uh-oh, I'm in trouble here. Um, the part that Graham Brady plays in her downfall, it almost plays the sort of role of chief whip rather than the 1922 committee chairman of turning up at key moments of her downfall to go, you need to do this, you need to do this. <laughs> 25P was one of those. And then the sort of, yeah. the sort of manic way that it came out, I think that, you know, it's sort of almost political naivety in the fact that they thought they could have a discussion about it um, at 10 o'clock at night, um, decide to U-turn on it and then all go to bed and announce it tomorrow. When you've locked 10,000 journalists, lobbyists, MPs and activists in a hotel with lots of expenses, yeah. lots of booze flying around, it just wasn't going to hold. So the sort of, again, it's a little bit like the Johnson thing. It's not necessarily the policy, the U-turn is the way, again, it, way it was handled that, that led to that sort of, chaotic feeling and then once the once that once the mps realized that they could got rid of the 45p rate next they were coming for corporation tax next they were coming for various other things i understand that liz trust though has told um so i told someone not too long ago that uh, she will go down in history though as the only modern prime minister in recent times to have ever reduced the tax burden because she's uh, <laughs> Brilliant. She, got her, she, she managed to Rise. Uh, well, that's, if, that, if that's her legacy, I'll be very, I'll be very surprised. That's one, I mean, for, the back. That's one absolutely. for the baby back edition. Um, but yeah, it was, it was just falling. It just, you know, it, it fell apart once. Yeah, once, once the sort of the chink in the armor was there, the whole, the whole thing fell apart yeah. incredibly quickly. And I think once you throw, and as Seb pointed out, once you throw your chancellor to the wolves. You know, you're siding with the Treasury orthodoxy that she railed the entire campaign. No, he was implementing her plans. It wasn't as though he'd gone rogue. Her, like... Exactly. And he, and he said to her in that room, you know, if you get rid of me, that you're next. Yeah. yeah. And she said, they're already coming for me. So it was a it was a last throw of the dice. And I think once once that had happened, um, you know, there was no fire guard, so to speak. And, and lo and behold, the, the next one in line was her. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll come on to, to her... Her replacement, I suppose, that, that that final night, I suppose, was that mad night in the Commons. I can't even bear to go back into it. The fracking vote and the whipping and all the kind of nonsense that got around to it. But obviously, it, that was kind of the, the final nail in in the coffin. Um, Seb, obviously, that left another vacancy at uh, in number 10. Um, just explain the kind of the process 
of how Sunak then took over. Obviously, we didn't have a vote amongst the members. We had this nomination process. Uh, and obviously, the, the 922 changed the rules to try and shorten the contest, I guess, to try and get it over and done with as quickly as possible and kind of end the madness. That's right. And I think, you know, as Harry said, when Kwasi was gone, it was just a question of when, not if, trust would follow him out of the door. And really, everything had fallen apart that night. And it was a, it, um, it was a vote on uh, fracking. And and again, the, the actual circumstances of how and why it happened were all very convoluted. But essentially, all discipline had fallen apart. There was no real sense of, was there a chief whip? Had she resigned? Had she not resigned? Was this a confidence issue in the government? There was reports of a fracker in the um, voting lobbies. The and middle, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And then and then the whole thing, um, the whole thing was just very, very messy. And essentially, it just felt that was it. So Liz Truss announced she was off. And Graham Brady, again, as Harry said, probably he's the sort of main character energy of the last year in a way <laughs> that whenever everything has fallen apart, the, the portly gentleman like figure of Graham Brady just emerged from the shadows to sort of dispatch yet another prime minister. And so he <laughs> set a very different set of rules for this time of doing it. So he said, that there would be a very high threshold to get on the ballot paper for 100 names. And this was to have a very quick contest. And it was meant to be a week long. So essentially, you get on the ballot paper. It would, And at that point, there'd be a very quick membership vote. It would all be done within a week, not repeating that long, tedious affair we had over the summer. And essentially, Rishi Sunak just took a very early lead on that, that he managed to get well over the, he was the, got well over the 100 names and eventually was pushing towards 200 names. But of course, the wildcard, in all this was Boris Johnson and pretty much as soon as um, the rules were announced it was reported I think first by Steve Swinford at the Times that Boris was going to throw his hat back in the ring and he was in the Caribbean at that point having a a break from 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 the affairs of Westminster, and he flies back. and Many of his allies, including Sir James Doddridge, his former parliamentary private secretary, said, "You know, um, look, boss, they all want you back. We've got the name. You should come back. It's all going to be great." And then Boris Johnson arrives back, and he sees Rishi Sunak on the Saturday evening, and concludes that actually, you know. It, there's not going to be a deal done, so they are going to go head to head, and then they try and get the names. And essentially, he does get a hundred odd names. Hundred and two was the names that his campaign and that was later verified by the nineteen twenty two. We've never actually found out who those names were or whether they no, were. No, we've never been given that number. Unique, no, no, and whether there were hundred and two unique names because a lot of <laughs> MPs that weekend promised their wares here, there, and everywhere. So I think there is a question about whether there's been some MPs who had also let their support to other to other candidates, Penny Bourne and Rishi Sunak. But ultimately, that Sunday night, Boris Johnson decides not to run um, and just essentially says it would be too divisive. And at that point, it's Rishi Sunak versus Penny Mordaunt. Penny Mordaunt doesn't quite get the 102 names. And so that's it. So Tory MP choose him. Liz Truss was off. And then uh, and then here we are now, our third prime minister of 2022. And it's just like that whole summer madness was just really a big waste of time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And there was that, that. I think that'd be my the, the moment I'd love to be a fly on the wall. I think this year is that that meeting in Millbank Tower on the Saturday night between Rishi Sunak and and Boris Johnson. And uh, we we don't know essentially what was what was really said. But I guess the conclusion, obviously, is that you know there was obviously some deal on the table that neither side went for. I think it was kind of a pivotal pivotal moment. What do you think was kind of the options on the table in that meeting and why it ended up with neither of them agreeing to anything. 
I think it was which one of us is going to be king. I don't think it was very right. complicated in terms of the options. I think it was. Uh, I think there was a, an argument being made um, um, from um, Johnson's perspective that um, they had at various points in their view, both put ego aside to do the best for the country throughout crisis after crisis. And they had been crisis leaders and they had been, um, you know, in when you compare them to the tensions that you saw in other double acts, the tensions were sort of end loaded between the two of them, considering what, you know, what they dealt with, with um, COVID, um, which were, you know, was really extraordinary time. And um, I think Boris's narrative went along the line of we're great in a crisis. Why don't we do that again? And um, I think, um, you know, uh, Sunak's view was, no, been there, done that. Um, It's time for a change and you might have a role, but, you know, I'm going to be king type thing. So I think it it was on that level, like relatively simple, Um, uh, you know, um, (laughs) Harry and Seb may know better, but I think it was, I think it was, I think it was that basic, um, you know, that that, that simple level. But um, I think what had surprised people was that, um, you know, Rishi was seen as a bit softer by some people, I think, for a long time. And they were they were throughout that period up to the Millbank point, quite surprised by actually how he really was quite cold in the moment. And that even with yeah. Boris, and, and I think, I think lots of people find it hard to say no to Boris in a room, but, you know, but he was able to sort of go, no, absolutely not. This is how it is. Yeah, and I think I think part of that that he was seen as perhaps a bit politically naive, and, and perhaps still is. But it was getting the agreement, I think, of of Swala Brevman to come on board on the Sunday. Uh, she wrote that op ed for the for the Telegraph. I think that kind of was said. Oh, he's he's willing to sort of like do the sort of dirty work the way he wasn't previously. And how do you think that that was kind of crucial? I know that obviously it's it's given him more problems since then. But do you think that was kind of an important moment? And did that kind of signal a change in his approach to trying to take over the leadership? Yeah, all the way through the year, actually, when Anna's story dropped in, was it March? You know, his reaction to that was really bad. Um, yeah. His his campaign was, you know, just by any by any default measure, because he didn't win, bad. Yeah. Um, and then you sort of saw him become into sort of maturity, political maturity that weekend in, as, as Anna said, you know, no dice to Boris. No, no deals. You know, we've, we've heard this, we've played this, this tune before. It ain't going to happen. Boris, you know, oh, let's get the old band back together. <laughs> you, know, you, know, you and me, buddy, you know, you can be my deputy prime minister, you know, la, 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 la. and he said, no, yeah, no, no dice. And I think, I think the Johnson camp were quite surprised by the forthright nature yeah. of, of Sunak in that meeting, who came in there and, as far as I can tell, no one, everyone's very tight-lipped about it and there were only two people in the room. So he's sort of hearing it second, third hand now. But he essentially eviscerated him and said, you know, this is this is no time for all of this. And I think also he came probably came armed, quite heavily armed, because Jeremy Hunt was very keen for there not to be a, a contest. Yeah. Jeremy Hunt you know, was had a graph produced for him by the Treasury, which he was wandering around showing people and MPs, you know, senior MPs saying we cannot have a contest because this is the pound that's going this way. And if there's a contest, it's going even further. Yeah, yeah. And so I think that sort of, I think a lot of people around Sunak saw him sort of that Saturday, then the Suella deal, which I think actually has helped him in a long way. It showed him, it showed us a, a certain ruthlessness. Yeah. I think the tactical error was thinking he could bring back Gavin Williamson as a reward yeah, yeah. For, for all the whipping work he did under, under the scenes. But he came to sort of... It, it, that weekend, you saw him actually want it and be hungry for it for the first time, rather than being a posh boy from Winchester who's never had to really work for anything with a rich wife and everything's sort of gone. Everything's come up Millhouse in a way, and everything's come, you know, everything's gone well for Rishi all his life. He and then he lost the leadership. 
And he could have swanned off back to California as, you know, as people thought he would do. But actually, he was quite ruthless that weekend and went for it. And I think MPs also looked at the, what he'd been saying in the campaign, which was unfund borrowing for whatever reason has to be, you know, any, any spending, be that spending on, you know, government spending or, or tax cuts, any giveaway has to be funded. And I think the the fact is that that, that that key debate where he was telling this trust, you know, it was fairy tales to his face, was recirculated that weekend among the MPs, and they thought, hang on, this guy was right. Yeah, maybe yeah. maybe we did lure ourselves into a full sense of, of, of security. Um, you know, if anyone's going to clear up the mess, we need we need we need yeah, let's give him a crack. He's earned it. Yeah. So obviously, yeah, then that's kind of led to that coronation. He obviously put together a cabinet that wasn't necessarily the cabinet he kind of wanted. He's been beset by various rebellions. He's trying to deal with the small boats problem in the economy. You know, it's not the easiest of, of starts. I'm conscious that we've raced through all this like this time now. And, you know, briefly from each of you, you know, I guess what's your kind of key takeaway from this year we had three prime ministers? And and if we were to do this again next year, you know, would we still have Rishi Sunak in number 10? Or what do we think is going to happen, I suppose, given the kind of very volatile nature? I'll start, we'll start with you, Seb. Well, I think, you know, this idea where it's going to waft towards a general election in at the end of 2024 is not one that I buy into. We've had kind of every conceivable bit of political machinations over the past year. And I'm just not convinced that something else is not going to happen. It's going to change the dynamic at the moment because the current narrative that Labour are going to win. I mean, all the polls and all the evidence would suggest that's overwhelmingly the case. But it still feels to me as if we've got one more big drama in us before the next general election. You know, oh, I'll God. Oh, I God. know. Seven. Sorry, I just jinxed it. I know. But I just think I just think if, if you look at any lesson from the past year, it's the it's the unexpected events that come, you know. If we were recording this this time last year, we still would have said Boris Johnson's going to fight the next election. He's probably going to win the next election. He'll get over Partygate. You wouldn't have seen, or you wouldn't have seen Ukraine. You wouldn't have seen Chris Pincher. You wouldn't have seen the Full Suit Grey report. You wouldn't have seen Liz Truss. So my general view is. It's, you know, it's much more likely than not that Rishi Sunak will fight the next election. He will still be leader this time next year. But what we'll be talking about, I just wouldn't want to put a bet on it. Anna, any any, any calm sense from you or what, what do we think? Um, I think sort of two, two things are going to determine it. One, it will be unemployment. Um, I think people um, are underestimating the political significance of when unemployment is expected to peak. It will be low relative standards, but it will be increasing at a time when people have had the financial stuffing kicked out of them. So unemployment is going to be, you know, and and solutions for that in the NHS backlog are going to be decisive. Um, But also rhino hide is the issue for Sunak. You know, there will be a story that he finds uncomfortable several between now and the next election he's only been in office i think what well, he i think he has now done nearly 50 days he has when we were as we're recording this he's just overtaken oh, uh, he's okay. no longer the, the shortest term okay well he's he, it, it's not very long um <laughs> long long by recent standards not long by normal standards and there will be some stories that he finds very uncomfortable and if if he feels in any way those stories are personal he does struggle to 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 handle them or he has historically um and as yeah. as harry's pointed out he has he has become uh, more easy with dealing with that side of things and and the scrutiny that comes with um, high office, but um, his rhino hide will be tested and it will be really decisive how he reacts to that. Mm. Yeah, Harry, I think Anna's point is that a lot of the problems that have been created this year we perhaps not really felt them. So things like the mortgages, 
uh, you know, every month more people come off their variable, come off their fixed rate and move on to another one and, and we'll hire mortgages. Unemployment's going to go up. We'll, we'll, the energy crisis, we've not talked about, you know, talked about the, the, the energy situation obviously is not going to get any easier. You know, what do you think 2023 has installed for Rishi Sunak? I mean, a lot of people talk about what, you know, it's the kind of the worst possible time to become prime minister. You know, is he still going to be around next year? Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm pretty sure he is. Whether he wins an election after that remains to be seen. I think, you know, if inflation is coming down and noticeably coming down by this time next year, I think he's in a stronger position than he would have been going into that election year. He's just created a massive rod for his own back yesterday with this target of, of abolishing the, the entire asylum backlog and they can yeah. over whether that's 90,000 or 140,000 but essentially it's it, it is a big target to to miss um on the eve of an election um i think it's up to the tory party really yeah um whether you know the problems of the problems in the government have not gone away because you've replaced the leader the same issues that faced boris johnson and liz truss are still there and it's whether the Tory party's given up, really. You know, I think the genie is out of the bottle as soon as you, you know, you have lunch or drink with a cabinet minister and they're openly talking about being in opposition. And you just think once that magic is gone, you know, you, you're into a sort of self, self-perpetuating sort of death spiral. Um, and the party is so ridden with division that essentially it is, you know, it is a massive coalition and it's really sort of four or five different blocks now. Um, ranging from sort of you know almost Blairite public sector reformers to increasingly sort of anti-immigration right wingers, and then you've got the sort of free marketeers, you've got the sort of big spending sort of um, uh, sort of one nation group, and it, it, can anyone really pull it together and win, or is it one of those times where the Tory Party goes into opposition for for a couple of years or, or maybe a couple of terms and regenerates itself as it's done so many times over the last 180 years that it comes back as something else yeah, uh, and, and carries on that success. I feel like we might be on the cusp of one of those things. So in a weird way, Sunak's almost swimming against the tide. Yeah, um, I think it'd be amazing to, to even try to knife another leader, um, <laughs> knife another leader and, and go into an election with the, what, the third or fourth prime minister. They're, they're so, they are a bit addicted to it though, aren't they? It does seem uh, as yeah. though. It's a party addicted to regicide and, yeah. um, when the herd move, I think I think it's less of a herd. It's more sort of Lord of the Flies at times. In that <laughs> well, as um, you say, you know, uh, Boris Johnson was the person who put that coalition together you exactly. know, in 2019. Final word to you, Seb. You wrote the book about Johnson. Do you think that he his spectre still lurks in the, in the background? Is do you think there's a there's a there's a final tilt at the top from Boris Johnson in 2023? I mean, the spectre will definitely lurk in the background. That Boris Johnson enjoys politics too much. He enjoys making mischief too much to simply just go back to his farm and not. And, and not come back to the front line. Um, you know, some supporters of Boris Johnson are talking about May's local elections next year, which are obviously oh, pretty difficult. I know, I know about saying, oh, maybe this is a moment for Sunak. But I tend to agree with Harry. It would be complete madness, even by the standards of the past 12 months of the Conservative Party and of British politics, to then have another pop at Rishi Sunak. So I do think it's much more likely than not that he will fight the next election. But as I said, you know, if Boris Johnson does stand again, we're told that he is going to run for his same seat of Oxford and South Ryslip, despite the fact it's trending towards the Labour Party. And, um, you know, we've still got all the boundary changes to get through and there'll be a big shuffle around of Tory MPs at some point next year about that. I mean, I just I think he will always be there, but I think there's a lot of open questions about what kind of thing he contributes because the people I spoke to 
when I was finishing off the book on him, said that, you know, the kind of thing they could see him doing is doing a big international role in terms of the reconstruction of Ukraine, working with America and France, fundraising, because that ultimately for him is probably his best legacy, that it was the thing he got right the most in 2022. He did lead international opinion. And in a way, you could see him doing that, not having to worry about all the kind of day-to-day stuff of Westminster and of that same thing that kind of undid him, which was, you know, the opinion of Tory MPs. But whatever happens, we certainly haven't heard the last of him. And I'm sure he will strive for main character energy in 2023, but I'm not sure he'll actually get it. That's all we've got time for this week, but you can read all the latest on the big stories from Westminster at politicshome.com and keep right up to date by subscribing to our seven-day week newsletters by clicking on the link in the top right-hand corner of the website. Thanks to my guests Anna Isaac, Seb Payne and Harry Cole. And thanks to you all again for listening. Please subscribe, review your podcast and leave us a review. If you want to get in touch, then reach out to us on Twitter at Politics Home or email us via news at politicshome.com. Look out for next week when the Poll Home team will be reviewing the rest of the mad year in politics. But for now, I've been Alan Tolhurst and this has been The Rundown.